So a couple of uh, life experiential things have helped me to understand this, this passage of Scripture, which honestly, it's a little bit difficult, it's a little bit challenging, and it, it, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, to be honest with you. It's kind of, it's rather difficult, and so it, and it's very intense. And so there's a couple of things that have helped me uh, to uh, have some lenses to look at it through, to help me understand it and make it a bit more clear. And the first lens is this uh, idea of life that we, we know from life, and that is this whole idea of use it or lose it. Uh, we know, right, if you've had some kind of an injury uh, in your, you know, your leg or your arm or your neck or something, and, and if you stiffen up or it gets bound up or it's in a cast or something and you can't use it, when it comes time to use it again, it's hard to lift your arm. It's, it's difficult to get that range of motion. It's almost impossible to pick something up if we haven't used something for quite a long time. And so we uh, you know that if you bind your arm to yourself for three or four weeks when you go to use it again, it doesn't work very well at all. You know, faith can be like that. Faith, in a certain sense, can have a little bit of use it or lose it. And the less we exercise our faith, the less we, we live in this life of faith, the more difficult it is to practice faith. And our faith, our hearts, can, the muscle of our faith muscle can atrophy a little bit. And before we know it, we can't exercise faith at all. And so there's a bit of a similarity between those two. So the first thing, keep that in mind, use it or lose it. The second thing, which is a bit more uh, sadly dangerously relevant for me, is, is the danger of stubbornness. I don't know about you, but in my life, sometimes, you know, I'll come to a decision to do this or to do that. You know, whatever that case may be, live this way, live that way. And once I've made that decision, if, if people come and try and put pressure on me to change that, I just get more stubborn. I just kind of say, no, and, the, and if I'm in a debate or in an argument, if I go along, I'm so foolishly, immaturely stubborn that even if the person persuades me, I'm not going to change at least the next day, so I think it's my idea. This whole thing about, about stubbornness and, and the more that we, we get pressure from people, the more difficult it is to concede and say, well, you know what, maybe I was right on that or maybe I should change that. Well, the same thing can be true with our faith. We can make a decision for or against Jesus. And then the more people pressure us, it, 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 it deepens our conviction. If sometimes if we decide it for Jesus, and somebody comes and says, this is Christianity, and this is what Jesus is like, and this is what we believe, and believe all this kind of stuff, and if we've decided for Jesus, yeah, that can, that can deepen that and say, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right. But if we've decided against Jesus, it's just really annoying. And there's just this hardness that can take over because, listen, I've already gone through this. I've already decided this. I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I am not going to listen to that. Uh, Origen, way back in like the second century, he said this, this whole thing about it. He says, listen, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. See what he's saying? When we think about Jesus and the offer of, the, of grace about Jesus and the fact that we're sinners that need to be saved and all those things, if we've accepted Jesus, our hearts melt like wax with that good news and we're just so thankful, like we're like a puddle of thanksgiving on the floor. But if we've decided against that way and I'm not a sinner and I don't need Jesus and I can be good enough and all those things, it just makes us harder to hear this message that, hey, maybe, Alan, you need some change in your life and maybe that change is so significant you can't do it on your own. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, just watch me. And so these two things of, of this whole thing about use it or lose it or stubbornness enter into this picture. 
And what happens is that we can sometimes, when we're dealing with people that we love, we can end up in a bit of trouble. Because our passion for people that we love and wanting them to know Jesus can, can actually make hearts a little bit harder if we press in the wrong way. You know, I was struck by this uh, a number of years ago. You know, uh, um, uh, Penn, Juliet, you know the magician Penn and Teller? You know, that, you know who that guy is? He's a magician, he used to be on TV quite a lot, and, and now he's quite an advocate for, for atheism. And uh, he had this statement, he talked about somebody that came to witness to him afterwards, after one of his shows, he said it was very good. And, and this is what he said, he said, you know, I really respect that guy, as opposed to a lot of the people who say they believe in Jesus. And this is what Penn, Penn said, he said, look, how much do you have to hate somebody? To not proselyze. We'd use the word evangelism or share the gospel. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselyze? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe in everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? See what he's saying? He's saying that we, we believe that we get passionate about it. And what happens is sometimes with people that we care about, that we become so passionate about it because we love them. And so, and so we, we kind of push the issue. And sometimes we push the issue in the wrong way. And it's so hard to know. As you know, I pray lots for our wandering ones. You know, people who are uh, young people raised in the church from children through youth. And, and, and they're, they're your kids. And they're our kids. But half of my prayer when we pray on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a staff and I do my own is, is for those of us who believe that have people that we love and care about that don't believe, that somehow we would be wise and sensitive to the leading of the Spirit to be part of the sun that melts wax, not hardened soil into clay, but it's, it's a passionate thing. And we see some of this passion for people that he loves in Jesus' words, in, this, in this, this last public address of Jesus. The next time in the Gospel of John when we get Jesus speaking to the public is when he's hanging on the cross. And this is his, this is his last public ministry, his last kind of public words. And, and he, it says that he cries out in this. And it's kind of an interesting word. It's a very, it's a very, very passionate word. It's used about uh, 55 times in the New Testament. Crusoe means to cry out. And the vast majority, and in very, very tense circumstances, this that's tough, stuff that's passionate, something that's all-consuming. And Jesus has got this all-consuming passion for us. And so when it comes to this last part, and people are stubbornly not believing and following yet, he cries out with this passion, and it's like he's shouting out, listen, please, believe, please, before it's too late, believe. And that's sort of what's lying behind Jesus and what John is going to portray for us here. As we go through this passage of Scripture, which kind of, it's a little tough, and it's easy to misunderstand. So let's read it, but keep in mind those two things. Keep in mind the idea of using it or losing it, and the idea of the danger of stubbornness and the consequences of stubbornness. Okay? So here we go. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs, you remember we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've broken up into two kind of big books, the, gospel, the, the book of signs, and the book of glory. So we're ending now the book of signs. And each one of these signs has been a thing. You know, do you believe this? Do you believe about Jesus? Remember, it's a court case. And there's evidence being brought forth. This is who Jesus is. Do you believe it? All right. So even after Jesus performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Why? What's going on? 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is, is, is biblical language for the power or the strength of the Lord. For this reason, they could not believe, because as I have said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. That's quite a statement. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him way back to centuries before. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. That's the Father. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. That's I am God. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge that person. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. But there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. All right. Some tough words. A little bit difficult. Kind of intense. This crying out. This passionate thing about Jesus and all this. And it's it's this cry to not be lay. And what John is doing is he's trying to answer a rather puzzling questions. This whole little first part, you, even after all of these signs. I mean, if you remember, all the, there's been six signs so far that have been pointing out that this is who Jesus is, right? Uh, Jesus turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. He healed a cripple. He provided a, you know, the 5,000 in the desert. He healed a man that was born blind. And finally, as we last saw in the sixth sign, he rose Lazarus from the dead. And John's like, you know, how could it possibly be that people could walk around, they could see Jesus doing these things, they could see the claim that it was, they could tie it into the Old Testament. How is it possible that they don't believe in Jesus after this incredible lawsuit has been put forth? How can they possibly find him not guilty of being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? How is that possible? Why don't they believe? What's with the persistent refusal to yield to Jesus? And John says, well, you see, the problem is that they're following a rather sad pattern that humankind has been following for a very, very long time. And the evidence that the people are not believing is not evidence that Jesus isn't true. It's evidence that what God has said and prophesied and expected remains true. It's been repeated throughout history, and he gives two examples. The ministry of Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery into the promised land of freedom, and the ministry of Isaiah. Now you say, what do you mean? I don't read anything about Moses in here. Well, here's why. If you look carefully at verse 37, take a look at it if you've got your devices there. That language that John uses in 
verse 37, is the same language that Moses uses back in Deuteronomy, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, where Moses is explaining this is why we had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Because after God had done all of these incredible signs, you know, the plagues and all of those things that happened, and after he parted the Red Sea, done all of these incredible signs, it came time for you to step into the promised land, and you wouldn't go. And because you wouldn't go, because you were afraid, because you didn't trust me, because you didn't have faith, you had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Because that's the pattern of people. No matter how large the signs are that God gives us, it's difficult for us, and we resist belief. And then, of course, the second example is this ministry of Isaiah, the prophet. And this whole passage is sort of built around two significant passages that Isaiah wrote. And the biggest one is he's saying that Isaiah had this ministry where God sent him to minister to people and to prophesy to people and to encourage people and to challenge people who had blind eyes and hard hearts. Now, when you read that, did you notice it sounds like God has blinded the eyes and has uh, stiffened the heart that God made it so that some people can believe and some people can't believe. And, and some people, you know, they, they, they would take that passage of Scripture and say, that, yeah, that, that, that's what it means, is that God looks at you and he chooses, okay, I'm going to blind you, but you're going to give sight, and you're going to harden your heart, and you're going to give a soft heart too. I don't think that that's right. I might be wrong, not much chance, but I might be wrong in that. <laughs> The person that really helped me to understand this passage in, in, in this context is Rick Watts. When I first listened to his lecture, I didn't think, oh, he didn't say very much. I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes. I had to listen to that sucker for like three times before I finally clued. Oh, so I will attempt to do a much better job than Rick Watts. Here we go. So one of the things what Watts said is that, listen, the first thing to notice about this, this prophecy of Isaiah and the blinding of eyes and the hardening of hearts is that it's in Isaiah chapter 6. That means that there's a whole pile of stuff that happens in the first five chapters, right? And what happens in the chapter immediately before chapter six is chapter what? Perfect, you got it, let's move on. <laughs> now here's the thing. What Isaiah chapter five is, is, it's called the song of the vineyard. And what the song of the vineyard is, is that God is singing this song and he's saying that, listen, you know, my people were like this vineyard. And I treated this vineyard incredibly well. I made the soil right and I built a, a fence around it to protect it. And I, I, I cared for it. I was a marvelous vine dresser and all these things. I really, really looked after this vineyard because I love this vineyard. But that vineyard refused my care. All that vineyard wanted to do was produce bad fruit. And the song of the vineyard is a song of judgment where God is saying, listen, I've been caring for you. I've been loving for you. I've built this hedge around you. I've done all these things. But you just refuse my love. You don't want me. You don't want my care. You don't want my hedge. You don't want my, my structure I put in to protect you. Okay, if you don't want it, okay. You don't have to have it. If you want blind eyes, you can have blind eyes. If you want a hard heart, then because I love you, I'm going to let you have a hard heart. I'm not going to force it. 
And then comes chapter 6. Okay. You want to be blind to my love, be blind. You want to have a hard heart so that my care for you, my words for you just bounces off? Okay. I like how Eugene Peterson, good Presbyterian boy, how he has this verse, verse 39. This is what Eugene Peterson says in the message. First, they wouldn't believe. Then, they couldn't believe. First, they wouldn't believe. And then it atrophied. The stubbornness caused the faith muscle, so to speak, to atrophy. And they couldn't see anymore. And so, in a sense, God did blind them. And in a sense, God did harden them. Because he made us as creations that if we don't use this faith muscle, it atrophies and it dies. And there comes a point where we can't see. And we can't believe because we haven't used this. Because just like, you know, my son Andrew worked for a number of years at the Golden Star. And one of the things that Andrew, there's quite a few things happened to the Golden Star, great stories. But one of the things that Andrew was amazed at is there was a cook back there. One of the fellas that, uh, you know, he was in his like 70s or, or maybe a bit older. And he was still cooking back there, really good cook. But Andrew said, it's incredible, Dad. He can reach into that boiling fat and pick out the egg rolls with his bare fingers. That's not because he was a kung fu master. It's because the calluses had built up around his fingers. And he didn't feel it anymore. And the same thing can be true of us, is that we can get this, this callus around our heart. And we don't hear grace and love and kindness and mercy and goodness of God anymore. It just kind of bounces off. And so Jesus shouts out this impassioned plea before he goes and spends the rest of the time with his disciples, before he goes through his judgment, before until he hangs on this cross. He has one last cry out and he's crying out to these people who, who've seen these signs but somehow are blind to them, somehow are callous to them. And he cries out, believe, please, before it's too late, before blindness sets in, before your heart gets too hard, respond, believe. Find me guilty of being the God who loves you to the point where I would die for you. Watch out for this danger that's before you. But then he goes on to a second danger. And the second danger is don't stall out. Don't stall out. That's what verses 42 and 43 are all about. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly accept, acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. It says many believed. Now we know of the leaders that, that Nicodemus came to faith, right? We've seen this develop through the Gospel of John. And we know that Joseph of Arimathea, who's a leader, he, he shows Jesus' faith. You know, they go and they ask Pilate for the body and all this sort of thing. But apparently, there's more than these, just these two guys. Apparently, there was a whole bunch of people who looked at these signs, who looked at the evidence, who sat through this law course and said, you know what? He's guilty. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one that God has sent. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. 
But I'm not going to go into full authentic faith. I'm not going to begin to live it out and arrange my life around this truth of who Jesus is. I'm not going to have active, authentic faith for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm afraid. They were afraid that they would be cast out of the synagogue. Now you need to understand being cast out of the synagogue, that's a very significant thing because what that means is is that you are being cut off from the people who believe in Jesus, from the people who would give us the support. But not only was it this, this, um, this faith support, but also it was, it was the respect of the peers. They wouldn't want these Pharisees to point out, you're a fool believing that this guy, what kind of a guy, a Messiah, is this Jesus? We've never heard of him. He comes from Nazareth. What are you talking about? Oh, good, good. Oh, don't be a fool. And not only that, not only do they lose respect, but they lose commercial prosperity. You know, the Apostle Paul in his ministry, one of the main things that he did is he went around to the Gentile church. You remember why? And he was taking up an offering. Why was he doing this? He says, because I want to take this money to the Christians who are in Jerusalem. Why? Because they are Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And as soon as they did that, they were cast out of the synagogue. And that meant that nobody would do business with you. And so they were afraid of this. They'd lose their social status. They would lose their spiritual support. They would lose their economic viability. And so they said, yeah, we kind of believe in this Jesus, but I'm not going to live it out publicly. I'm not going to go all the way because I'm afraid of the consequences of doing that. That can be tempting for us. For fear to hold us back. For fear to silence us. Because we don't want to lose status. We don't want people to think how naive we are, how foolish we are. And nowadays, we don't want people to think that we're hate-filled homophobes. And so we don't say anything. Because we're not those things, but we're afraid that people are going to think those things And so the fear of what pigeonhole people might put me in in some social setting or in a workplace, it's just easy not to say anything. Because I'm going to be seen as something that I'm not and I don't want to be. So I'll just kind of keep quiet. Or or sometimes it's fear that that maybe it's not to keep quiet so much as it is to take a step of faith into some venture, some life, some ministry, some move, some change that scares us. Because it's kind of comfortable staying where we are, who we are, doing what we know what to do and how to do it. And God is calling us into this step forward and we think, well, man, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I don't have the resources for it. Maybe I won't have the support for it. Maybe I'm afraid that, you know, I haven't heard God quite right. And so fear can hold us back to stay stuck where we are and to not live out the life of radical faith that Jesus invites us to because we're afraid. And we don't point fingers and throw rocks too hard at that because I bet you all of us have been in one circumstance or another where fear has caused us to shrink back in some way from living out the full life of Jesus and the full faith that we know that Jesus is calling us to. But maybe it's not fear that holds us back. It wasn't fear that held them all back. For some of them, it was just that they looked for people's praise. They were looking for their social status. 
They loved, it says, human glory more than the glory of God. They loved the idea that people would respect them and lift them up and say how smart they are and how spiritual they are and how wise they are and what a leader they are and look at their social status. And they just, they just loved that acceptance and praise that they had as a Jewish leader in the synagogue, you know, and it was a greatly esteemed position. Everybody respected, everybody had opened doors, all of these things. And they didn't want to let that go for the sake of hearing the love song of God over us. The truth is that their desire was for faith without price and blessing without cost. Faith without price and blessing without cost. Man, I can be tempted into that. Maybe you can't. But it's so easy to try and have a faith without cost. Just you know, keep it private. And have the blessings of God without understanding that there's a price to pay for following Jesus. And it's this sad reality of Jesus knowing that people are in that spot that causes to cry out with this incredible passion. Because you see, what Jesus wants us to understand is that the stakes are very high. And that's what verses 44 through 50 are all about. He cries out with this anguished cry. And please understand, when Jesus is talking about this whole thing about judgment and that there is a judge and all those things, that, that's not some, some hard-hearted, stern rebuke. This is a tender appeal from the Savior of the world to say, listen, please believe while you still have time. Please believe because the consequences and the cost of not believing, I don't want you to experience. Because I came not to judge the world, but to save the world, said Jesus. That was my mission. It's to come and to portray the heart of God and to bring you into a life eternal, this life eternal that we sing and we sing about and say, I believe in life eternal because I believe in Jesus. Jesus says, that is my intention. That is God's mission. That is the heart of the Father to bring about reconciliation between God and people, between people and people, between people and creation, between people and themselves. So please, Believe, please, while there's still time, believe. Because I'm the road to healing and the road to salvation, but there is an alternative. The alternative of not belief. Because this is the warning part, because although my mission was to come and to save, there is a judge. And the measurement by which I will be judged and you will be judged and all of creation will be judged are the very words and claims of Jesus. And the Father holds our life up against the claims of Jesus and says, how do you measure up? Did you have that faith? When you sang that song that we just sang, I believe. Do you believe that? Do you live your life, Alan, in the face of that and in the reality of that? Because without that, there is no life. Jesus' plea not to put faith off until our hearts become numb to the message. And he appeals us, don't let fear or the glorious things of earth or social structures pull you away from the journey towards Jesus. Instead, embrace faith in all of its fullness as Jesus as the Savior 
the very glory of God. The glory of God that Isaiah said, that John said, you need to understand that what Isaiah saw, when he saw the glory of God, he saw God who became man. He saw God Almighty, who is Jesus. The glory of God, as we've been speaking about in the last couple of weeks. And so this passage that John quotes falls on the heels of a marvelous section of scripture that we know and sometimes sing. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple And above him were seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is paid for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. That Lord Almighty that Isaiah saw is this Jesus who says, believe, please, while there is time, believe. And so in answer to the cry of Jesus, this anguished plea of love, may we be the ones that say, here am I. I want my sin atoned for. Send me as the great proclaimer of your glory. Almighty God, on the one hand, this whole deal is so simple. Just believe, put trust in in Jesus. This, This man who healed the sick and fed the thousands and raised the dead and died so that death does not have its victory and we can live forever. And on the other hand, sometimes it's hard to believe for all kinds of reasons. Don't want to admit 
were sinners. Don't believe that anything could cover the amount of sin in our life. I'm afraid what that would mean for the changes it would call upon me. I'm kind of comfortable where I am. I just doubt. There's all kinds of things that cause us to stumble and then and then sometimes there's all kinds of things that stop us taking the next step and just sort of hold it in. And I suppose this shouldn't surprise us because it doesn't surprise you because you saw it back in the days of Moses through to Isaiah and to today. So I pray, Lord, that we would see your glory. That we would know that the whole earth is filled with your glory. And that we get to look upon your face, Jesus, when the seraphim had to cover their eyes. But you came and took on flesh so that we could see you. And you could say that your greatest glory is to hang on the cross so that our sin would be atoned for, would be paid for, so that we could have life. So carry us through our questions and carry us through our doubts and carry us through our fear and carry us through perhaps our selfishness of wanting the praise of people rather than the song of the love of the Father. And help us come to that place where we say to you, here am I, not only to receive your grace and life, but to be sent to proclaim this great news to everybody because we love them. And how can I say I love people if I think that there's a path to eternal life and not say it and not live it? So come and do your good work in us, Holy Spirit. Help us to love Jesus more. Help us to see your glory in all of its majesty, in all of its passion, in all of its suffering, and in all of its victory. We pray through Jesus. Amen.